I was writing a thing today. Thank God I haven't published it where I was talking about the significance of transsexual stuff in Dog Day Afternoon. And it just occurred to me I was calling it Hard Day's Night. Radio Drone. Thursday night is where you will find me, Josh Hadley, as well as, for some reason, a piggy Hugo Stiglitz, Alex Jowski. Hugo Piglitz. Fine. As well as the true heir to Thanksgiving, Cecil T. Robot. Yes. That's it? Uh, that's all I got. That's one All right, fair enough. If you guys got done plugging for Thanksgiving and you want to get plugged, you could go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code DROME to get 10 free gifts. You'd get six free DVDs, a gift for him, a gift for her, a gift for both of you, and free U.S. shipping on top of whatever thing you buy to either stick in you or stick your thing in from adamandeve.com. Just use the promo code DROME. We're going to be looking at old Hollywood called New Hollywood. When I say New Hollywood, what do you think of in terms of New Hollywood as a term or as a movement? I think of immediately uh, Coppola and Spielberg and Lucas, just the names and their, their works at that period of time. Not their modern stuff, just the stuff that made them what we know they are today, among others. But those are the three big ones that come to mind. Um, in a similar vein, I just think about the rise of the directors that were just really coming into their own at the time that were taking a cue from Hollywood of the past, but putting a new spin on it and making it something that was similar, but was becoming its own thing, like kind of coming out of the old style of Hollywood, where there was that very stilted kind of acting. And now like actors were, were much more uh, fluent and directors were doing a lot more unique stuff. Well, what New Hollywood actually was is, as Cecil alluded to, the 50s and 60s are what was called Old Hollywood. It was just the same old stuff. You had Hello, Dolly, and Tora, 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 and Sound of Music, and it was just dominated by musicals and historical epics and gangster pictures, and this is prior to the MPAA, MPAA so we're still under the Hayes Code. So you couldn't show the bad guys winning. You couldn't show blood or anything. It was considered just kind of a bland vanilla milk toast pictures and by the mid 60s people were were leaving films in droves tv was taking some of it because you had all these hard edge cop and crime dramas and people were just sick of this safe old hollywood and then this whole new wave came in partially pushed by the european art films and the french new wave as well as the spaghetti westerns and the japanese films that were being released in america after two significant films came out, the entire studio system realized it had to change. Now, there's debates on what the true beginning of New Hollywood is. The one constant is that New Hollywood is what would have been independent or small films being financed by studios who, prior to this, would have never touched 
some of the subject matter. So independent films don't count. For instance, I can't find Texas Chainsaw Massacre ever having been called a new Hollywood film because it was an independent, ironically enough, released by the mob and was not released by the studio system. For, for the rest of tonight, you have to realize that all the films we're talking about and all the ground that they broke, these were put out by MGM and Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox and Paramount. These were studio films. Dance New Hollywood. It was Hollywood. Exactly. This, yeah. But a lot of these films, I'm going to be bringing up a ton of titles tonight where people are going to be surprised. They're going to go, that was a studio film? Really? And yeah, a lot of these... You'll be shocked to find out that these were fully backed by the studios. Now, it's debated what the first new Hollywood film really is. A lot of people will say Bonnie and Clyde in 1967, but the general consensus is Easy Rider in 1969. Because, yeah, before that you had Rosemary's Baby, Planet of the Apes, 2001, Greetings, things like that, The Dirty Dozen. None of these films were really that unique. I mean, think about 2001 and Planet of the Apes and that. They very much fit into the old Hollywood style. Where do you fall? Bonnie and Clyde or Easy Rider for the beginning of New Hollywood? Uh, that's tough because uh, they both they both push things uh, in in different ways. Uh, I guess which one was <laughs> which one was technically released first? Bonnie and Clyde. But Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde, Clyde was also did not make a lot of money. Easy Rider became the most profitable film from cost to budget or from budget to intake ratio of all time until Friday the 13th came out. All right. Well, I mean, it's it's not always uh, the first that ends up being the innovator. I mean, uh, if if the popular thing goes to Easy Rider, I would probably say more Easy Rider, even though technically it's Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde. Same reason I consider Blair Witch Project the first found footage movie. It was the innovator. Even if it wasn't, well, I mean, in this case, Bonnie and Clyde was the first, really, but. But it was not the innovator. Some of the films we're going to bring up, and we'll talk about different trends as we go through the years. I'm going to go relatively chronologically here. I find it hard to believe that a film such as The Wild Bunch was released by a studio. The Wild Bunch, at the time it came out in 1969, was the most violent film ever made. There are more on-screen deaths in The Wild Bunch than any other film up until, I think, the 1990s. More people die in The Wild Bunch on camera than any other movie, to the point where it got an X rating originally because of how many gunshots were in the film. I saw it once back in film school, and I, I wasn't even that into it. I, felt, I thought it was boring. Philistine. I just really could not get into the Wild Punch, but I'm not a fan of Peckinpah. Double Philistine. Uh, I I think I saw it, but I, I don't uh, I don't recall enough about it. Um, and it's one of those. It's a western, isn't it? Oh yeah, Peckinpah. Yeah, right. I westerns unfortunately don't do it for me. So that's not saying that it's a bad movie. Just saying that uh, I am not really a big fan of westerns, so I don't usually seek them out. Wild Bunch also started the whole – another trend that would go through New Hollywood would be subversion. L.Q. Jones and Struther Martin, their characters are gay, but you don't know it. Both of them play their characters as subtly lovers because the studio, even with the innovation that they were willing to go with, would not allow gay main characters. So they play it very subtle. Now, after I say that, go back and watch The Wild Bunch, and you'll go – Holy crap, these characters, these manly men, these murderers, 
They're lovers. A lot of the films we're going to be talking about were all about subversion. They were very counterculture. That was another element that ran through a lot of New Hollywood was they kind of embraced the counterculture while working in the studio system, which I think is kind of ballsy. Hell, speaking of counterculture, how about Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, a film about wife swapping? Could you have ever thought a studio in the era coming just three years after The Sound of Music would make Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice? No, I, I wouldn't think that at all. The thing with New Hollywood is it happened fast. And that's why it's like, would you think that the studio that did this just that much earlier would do this? Because it happened so fast. Like, you know what I'm saying? That's what made it shocking was that they went from Sound of Music to Wife Swapping in such a short period of time. Uh, only on television, oddly enough. So you, so so you I, saw it all cut up? Yeah, I think I didn't get the full picture because uh, apparently there were four friends and that's about all I got out of it. <laughs> okay, a wife swapping movie that cuts out all the wife swapping parts kind of yeah. kind of defeats the purpose of didn't showing really it. But a, okay, didn't really make a whole lot of sense. That's kind of like it's uh, kind of like that time ABC showed Pulp Fiction and you just went, "Why? <laughs> What's the point?" It's pretty cool. I mean, if you think about it, because that was when even the major studios were willing to take risks because there were still people in charge. That, yes, they were there to make money, but they were also trying to, you know, ruffle a few feathers and get stuff out there that got people talking. And that's what would usually get people into the theaters. Now, uh, they almost panic when whenever they get someone talking. Oh, it's not controversial. Don't don't watch it. And then they'll they'll edit it out. Like, what was that? um, uh, What was that movie with um, the kids that laid down in the street and then dumbbells went program the program? Yeah, Gene, Gene, uh, Gene Hackman. Yeah, they couldn't edit that out of the movie fast enough. It's like, it's not the fault of the movie that people are stupid. That's that's another thing about the new Hollywood of the point we're talking right now about 1969, 1970 was they started seeing the counterculture, which is something that old Hollywood ignored. They They saw after Easy Rider, and remember, Easy Rider, like I pointed out earlier, from budget to box office, the highest ratio ever. Until 1980, they saw, well, wait a minute. You mean these goddamn filthy hippies buy tickets to this stuff? They they did, they never count. They never made movies for the counterculture before this. They have their friends with jobs buy tickets, but it counts the same. Yes, but now they're making movies for the counterculture and partially spurned on by the just in its early phases at this point black exploitation movement. Most black exploitation films were made by Warner Brothers and Paramount, which is just shocking when just 3 years earlier they would not allow a black main character in a film. And then 3 years later they're making entire black films for black audiences. I don't think those people who did not live through this era, and obviously at this point I'm not born yet, but I was around for the later half of New Hollywood, you guys don't realize just how quickly this changed and just how quickly the studio said, we love money. I don't care if I hate these filthy hippies. They're buying tickets by the bucket full. So New Hollywood really was a shift. I mean, you look at a movie like Joe. A movie like Joe would have never been made two years before. Yet, movies like Joe and Panic in Needle Park, you just go, what the hell? We're up to 1971 now. Play Misty for me. If you've ever worked at a radio station, 
That movie is scary. I like Fatal Attraction better. I'm sorry, okay? I was not really that into Play Misty for me. I'm there, totally he said respect. it. Ooh, yeah. and Cruel Intentions is way better than Dangerous Liaisons. Get I just out. want to throw that out there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, God knows John Malkovich is hideous looking. Well, and then, yeah. you know, still in 1971, I don't want to go into too much detail because I'm planning a full four-film French Connection retrospective next year, but The French Connection was the first real cop movie that was arguably realistic and showed the very scummy, dirty, Vic Mackey side of police work. This was not... Because remember, under the Hayes Code, you had to show police relatively in stand-up, kind of in a stand-up way. The French Connection is dirty. It's vile. Popeye Doyle is a scumbag, and he's our hero. That was another big change. They were able to start to show the establishment in a light that was less than favorable. I mean, of course it was realistic. They shot uh, the car chases without permits, for crying out loud. That's one of the reasons why it had that that gritty look to it. Yeah, the French Connection is... Uh... I, I've, I've only ever seen the first one. I never saw the second one. And, and apparently you said there's two more. Technically. Um, there's a TV movie in 1986 and the seven ups starring Roy Scheider. He's play plays the same oh. character he plays in the French connection movies. So right, it's a, right, right. It, the, the seven ups is a side quill. It's a shame because um, watching it now, uh, a lot of it is lost because if you've never seen it before, it's been ripped off so many times by so many various cop movies that uh, it kind of feels it, 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 that's the problem with with the innovators is that when you go back and watch them, you're like, oh, it's cliche. Well, it's cliche because everybody took from them. So but uh, to live and die in L.A., that movie is horribly cliche today. It wasn't in 1985. Oh, God, no. Yeah. Lived I remember. Uh, yeah, that's a kick ass movie, too. Well, no, let's stick with cops. Arguably the innovator of the rogue cop, Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry from 1971. I can't believe Warner Brothers put out that movie in 71. I mean, we did a whole retrospective with Fred Fritz and Mike White and I not too long ago, but you guys were both absent for that one. I like it. I was not alive when it came out. So as far as it being innovative, I suppose, because everything in it is so done to death now – Oh, Dirty Harry's great. Um, it's actually one of my father's favorite movies. And uh, the first time I saw it, I was, I don't remember how young I was, but I was young. And we got it on uh, on VHS. And my dad was like, you know, I'm going to show you, you know, what a what a kick-ass cop movie is. And I'm like, all right. You know, and we sat down and, and watched it. And I was just like, wow, you know, this guy's cool. Garrick <laughs> is crazy. It, yeah, uh, it. It was just I think it might have also been the first time that I ever really saw Clint Eastwood in anything. It was just it was just awesome. I, I've always you know, and he does the, the whole, you know, uh, did I shoot was it five bullets or six in all the commotion? I forgot myself. Yeah. Uh, do you feel do I feel lucky? Well, do you punk? It's just oh, it's so great. He's such a badass. And then seeing him cry in the freaking uh, Bridges of Madison County. It's like, no, no, I, dirty I, I, Harry. I think it's worse when, when he's talking to an empty chair. <laughs> I brought up black exploitation earlier. The true beginning of the black exploitation movement was also in 1971 with God. I love this title. Sweet, sweetbacks, badass song. Melvin Van Peebles making a movie with no permits, actual sex. I mean, they were 
actually having penetrative sex. This was not one of those movie sex scenes. They just didn't show the insertion, but they were really screwing to the point where he got VD on this movie. Sweet, sweet back, man. Didn't he get syphilis? I think I, I don't remember what VD. He's had VD multiple times, but yes, I have. That movie's awesome. Oh, it's a fantastic movie. But can and you it believe really it's the the first black exploitation? Yeah, it, it is straight out the beginning of the black exploitation film. And can you believe that that this film was made by a studio? That is difficult to believe, especially by today's standards, where studios play it so safe. That movie is just about the unsafest thing ever. I mean, look, people are getting syphilis. Okay, technically, I had to back up. It wasn't made by a studio. It was made independently, but released by a studio. So it was still a pickup, something that they were willing to endorse. And the film is so graphic, it got an X rating originally, and they said, you know what, let's use that. Go back and look at the trailers for Sweet Sweetback. The movie that is so graphic, they don't want you to go see it. This is why you should go see it. That was their ad campaign. They embraced the goddamn X rating. And then we've got the film that made Hillbillies scary, and you'll never hear the same way again. Doolin Banjos was an actual top 40 hit until Deliverance came out in 1972. Jowski, you got a real purdy mouth. I thought it was a top 40 hit because of Deliverance. I thought Deliverance was why it was popular. My biggest problem with Deliverance is not Ned Beatty being sodomized by a hillbilly. It's John Voight with a mustache and Burt Reynolds without one. That's just wrong. Dueling Banjos became the sound, or I should say the uh, soundtrack to rape. Like That was the like sound that whenever, when, when Pulp Fiction happened, people just ding, 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 ding. It's it's such a dirty, visceral movie. It's just uncomfortable and unpleasant, and it it doesn't it doesn't make you feel good. It doesn't like you are kind of rooting for the good guys, but it's not a fun movie. No, it's it's just it's an unpleasant venture. It's a it's a classic for a reason, but it's it's one of those movies that you really can't watch a lot, or at least I can't watch a lot. And then, you know, poor, poor Ned Beatty's asshole. But I mean, for 1972 to have an Oscar winner be sodomized on film, that's ballsy. No pun intended. Yeah, that's definitely a doozy. They, they again, going back to they took risks back then and not just from a monetary standpoint. They didn't just throw three hundred million dollars at a piece of garbage movie and expect it to, to do well. They actually you know, put money and invested in films that they had faith in that were different and were unique and were edgy. Speaking of that, 1972 also brought us Fritz the Cat, a cartoon that I love for what it is, but I hate for how pointlessly excessive it is. There's a reason the film is X-rated, and I think it needed to be. But I think the film also revels in its X-rating a little too much to the point of literal exploitation. So while I like Fritz the Cat, I have issues with it. I've never really liked it. I mean, I... I... That's fair enough. There's a lot to not like in it, so it's a fair enough assessment. I didn't like it either. I, I actually... Um, the the first movie... Like, the Fritz the Cat was not the first, like, animated X-rated film that I saw. Uh, it was what, the, the, the Cavemen one. 10,000 BC, or you know what I'm talking about? X-rated uh, animated feature. And that was kind of, that was funny. But Fritz the Cat, it just, eh, didn't work for me. It's, 
It, it might have been more um, of a big deal when it first came out, but by the time I got around to seeing it, it I just thought it stunk. What about the beginning? Well, not necessarily the beginning, but the beginning of the big-budget disaster movie trend, the Poseidon Adventure. Only in New Hollywood would they say, let's get together every huge-name actor in Hollywood and kill him in the same movie. I... I was a big fan of the the old disaster movies, uh, Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno. Towering uh, Inferno comes later, and we had Airport earlier, but I didn't think Airport was really that note noteworthy, really. And then it's not. Um, I don't. I don't know. I wouldn't. I guess it would fall under the category of disaster, but yeah, I guess it does. But uh, Poseidon Adventure, uh, it, it is. It is great. It was amazing with the way with the 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 big sets and just how everything was just looked so grand and then they just destroyed everything and they killed every actor you've ever loved and they killed all these major players that was ridiculous when you think about that i never loved shelly winters (laughs) (laughs) who did but uh, when when you look at movies now when they want to kill a major star and they just can't commit or they'll they'll kill them off camera, or they'll they'll leave it so oh maybe they didn't really die. This it's like oh they died they died horrifically. Then you've also got the kind of prestige pictures that maybe would not have been given the given the backing in old Hollywood. Something like The Godfather because The Godfather it's a rather traditional movie and the not necessarily the way it's shot or especially not the way it's told, but. Over the overarching movie is somewhat traditional and kind of harkened back to the gangster pictures of old, but with a totally new counterculture, again, sensibility to it. Godfather is a fantastic movie. I think this, this, is, this is one of the new Hollywood films that I believe could have come out in old Hollywood. This one wasn't as groundbreaking as I think it's given credit for. Godfather is a fantastic film, and I think you're right about the it doesn't feel as groundbreaking. It has its moments, of course, but overall it has the epic classical storytelling of old Hollywood, which I completely credit Mario Puzo for because he was a writer for old Hollywood. Godfather is an absolutely revolutionary, groundbreaking landmark of a film that I don't think that um, let me see how to phrase this. It's it's good. I respect it. I, I think it deserves all of the praise that it gets. But I like Goodfellas better. Well, and then we come to a film I, like, I don't like. I do not like this movie at all. My wife loves it. My mom loves it. Everyone around me loves American Graffiti. I never I'm not a big fan of the 1950s outside of the giant monster flicks that it bred. But American Graffiti was also the start of sort of nostalgia exploitation. You had period pieces in old Hollywood. F- fair enough. American Graffiti, and George Lucas is well on record about this, was meant to be a nostalgic look back at the 1950s, which I think is different than a period piece. This is nostalgia exploitation, and I thought that's all it was. The story is weak. I find the characters weak. The dialogue is tepid. I just could not get into this. This was all just about people in 1973 going, oh, God, I remember the 1950s. Just didn't do anything for me. I Oh, American Graffiti we watched in history class. And our stupid teacher's like, we're going to watch this movie that's from the guy that made the Star Wars. So I'm thinking, oh, we're watching THX or something. It's American Graffiti, and it bored me to tears. 
This is dazed and confused with no life and nothing to say. Well, and THX is a fair enough comparison. I do consider THX 1138. I do consider that part of New Hollywood, but it's not on these lists for some reason. But that's just me. I really like American Graffiti. Of course you do. Uh, I I do, you know, I but I don't give a crap about the 50s. I don't know. It just uh, it has a like charm to it. Now, obviously, I'm skipping over a lot of movies that people are probably going to call us on. And go, why didn't you mention this? Because this film, the, the the show is only an hour long. We can't talk about them all, but we cannot leave out what I consider one of the most horrifying horror films of the 70s, The Exorcist. There's no way prior to New Hollywood The Exorcist would have ever been released by a studio. I can actually see the film having been made in the exploitation era for drive-ins, but it would not have been as, one, classy, and two, as well-made as it was. I think The Exorcist is one of the best takeaways from the pre-blockbuster era of New Hollywood, and I'll get into that more in a little bit. Fantastic. One of the best horror films ever. The little subtle things that they put in there with like the the devil faces and uh the the music it's it's just creepy reagan freaking um oh god what's her name linda blair linda blair thank you linda blair gives such a terrific performance for being such a young kid and playing something that is so awful I mean, she she didn't understand it. She outright says on the extras, she didn't understand a lot of what she was doing in the movie. She was just doing what this paper told her to do. It's probably for the best. Your mother sucks cocks in hell. I mean, come on. It's yeah, I I freaking love The Exorcist. Uh, And I get I get annoyed when people say that it's slow and it's like, no, it's building tension. Cecil, it's not slow. It's deliberate that there's a huge difference. Oh, well, I understand that completely, but, uh, you know, the Boo Scare crowd, they, they want to jump out at them every five seconds. That's scary. No, the building tension until, like, the end where there's the actual exorcism scene. That's freaking terrifying. It's one of great horror classics. For a reason. Yeah, for a reason. And Cecil's right about that it's deliberately paced. It's building tension. It's the Boo Scare generation that puts it low. That says, oh, Exorcist was so boring. Best movie ever dragged me to hell. Well, and The Exorcist also exemplified another tenant of New Hollywood. The studios leaving the filmmakers alone. That they said, okay, we're greenlighting your movie, with a, with a few exceptions where like an X rating came in and whatnot for like Midnight Cowboy and, and that. They said, as long as you come in rated R... And under your allotted time, you know, under your allotted budget and runtime, we will leave you alone. And that was another big tenet that you do not find in modern day Hollywood. Unless you're a Christopher Nolan, you are not left alone within the studio system. But New Hollywood said, we're going to trust you. And until we get to the late 70s and early 80s, that trust was not misused when it came to people going to the box office and going to see your film. But then there's also kind of the studios not understanding New Hollywood even while they're making it, such as Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore is kind of a bleak tale about a working-class woman who has really nothing to live for. So let's turn it into the seven-season sitcom Alice a few years later. That told me, you have no idea what this film was about, do you? I have never seen uh, the movie but I've seen pretty much all of the TV show. Of course you have. 
Well, it, I don't know. It was one of those shows that was on, and it was funny when I was like 10. And then you've also got, in New Hollywood, the film debut of this guy named John Carpenter, Dark Star, which I think is a fantastic film and incredibly underrated. This is one of those weird ones from New Hollywood. It was a short film that the studio gave extra money to because they had to get it up to to feature-length running time that actually kind of ruined the short film. I actually like the short film version of Dark Star better. So I'm a little weird on that one. That is the only Carpenter film I've not seen. I saw Dark Star um, a long time ago, or the first time, and I didn't like it because I was like young and didn't quite get it. And then I saw it again uh, years later, and I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was, it wasn't what I was expecting. It did feel uh, kind of cheap, but because um, it was, because it was. But uh, overall, I ended up walking like I did enjoy it. But it is it. It's one of my least favorite of the Carpenter films. But it's not to say that it's bad. Just saying that he's got other films that are just light years better. Well, then you've got other ones. I'm going to breeze through a few of these because I want to get I want to get to 1974 here. You've also got Chinatown, Godfather Part Two, Sugarland Express, which would be an early Spielberg film, Towering Inferno, which you mentioned earlier, Cecil. But then you've got the two Mel Brooks films of 1974, Blazing Saddles being the first one. I can't believe a studio put out Blazing Saddles. This film is so counterculture and so groundbreaking. I can't believe that Warner Brothers not only greenlit this movie, but released it to theaters. We're all better off for them having done so. Only during the new Hollywood era would Blazing Saddles have ever escaped. Yeah, only during that era. That that would not come out today, at least not in the same form at all. Holy crap would that not come out today. Like every taboo in there that would just hold i mean there would just be a freaking so many people picketing that film if it came out today it would be and if they tried it would be so watered down and all the humor would be taken out yeah there's no way that that blazing saddles would be made today well and then also in 1974 this one's not as surprising but you've got young frankenstein which i think is the far more subtle of the two me- to the the far more subtle of the two movies by a long shot. I don't know if I'd say it's better. I like both movies about equally. But Young Frankenstein actually feels like a studio film. It, it, it's not as groundbreaking. It's not pushing the boundaries that Blazing Saddles was trying to. In a way, Young Frankenstein was more innocuous. Uh, I've only seen it a couple times, but uh, it, it's it's very funny. But actually, it's another one. The first time I saw it was on television. Oh, man, I loved that movie all the time. Frau Bluka! When I was younger, I didn't get any of the jokes, and my sister and I didn't (laughs) know it was comedy. We thought this was an actual version of Frankenstein. But but now that you're a Universal Universal Monsters fan, now does it matter more to you? Oh, it's one of the funniest films ever made. Well, and now I know you can talk about this next one, Alex. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Because prior to this, you have to look at where society was in this, at this point. When you went to a mental institution, they were still called the crazy house then. You, you did not get treated with sympathy for having been in the crazy house. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest kind of tried to say, these are people too. 
which is a ballsy as hell statement for 1975, isn't it? And also the fact that Nurse Ratched is not necessarily the villain. She's just sort of the villain, the de facto villain. I think, and maybe I'm just being a cinema snob here, it kind of feeds into that the system itself is why these people can't get better. Alex, I know you've studied this movie. Am I reading too much into that? No, you're reading correctly into it. You're reading what they wanted you to read into it. Um, aside from all the parodies, uh, I've never actually seen it. Well, and then you've got something like Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon, until you get to the twist at the end, is just kind of a run-of-the-mill crime thriller. But the fact that they brought trans movement in there and the gay community, I think that was actually pushing some boundaries. Uh, You know, just telling it in a traditional crime thriller kind of way. I was writing a thing today, thank God I haven't published it, where I was talking about the significance of transsexual stuff in Dog Day Afternoon, and it just occurred to me I was calling it Hard Day's Night. (laughs) Whoops. Oops. I got to go back and fix that. Dog Day Afternoon caught me off guard because I knew it was like, oh, it's this notable movie about a bank robber, and I was reading about it, and it's like, to pay for his boyfriend's sex change, I'm like, they would not have made this movie back then in the <laughs> 60s. This was Sidney Lumet, man. And do you know who do you know who the FBI agent that uh, kills him at the end is? Lance Henriksen in his first oh. movie role. Hey, that's pretty good. And it actually has very insightful – it's not like 60s blind like, oh, they're funky people that they don't know what they're doing. They're real people with real yeah. feelings. Their motivations are a little screwed, but still. No, no. It's not their motivations are screwed. It was the way that they, they – I mean – Robbing a bank the, to pay for a sex yeah, change yeah. is kind of screwed. No, no, no. That's not the motivation. The motivation was the sex change. That's not screwed. Okay. The, their methods I meant then. Yeah. The, their ends to serve the means was kind of screwed. I mean, you can sympathize with them, which is an interesting thing. You don't see too many crime movies where they try to get you to sympathize with the criminal. It's one of those movies I know in name only. I've never seen it. So were you surprised when you just heard us talking about the the sex change and gay boyfriend for Pacino? Had no idea whatsoever. (laughs) Now, before we get into what started the beginning of the change of New Hollywood, both for the good and the bad, there's one movie that's left off of all of these lists that I think should be on here, and that's Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon is absolutely a new Hollywood film. You've got the first martial arts film to ever be financed by a studio released wide with this new guy, and I'm putting new in quotes, Bruce Lee. You've got Jim Kelly and John Saxon in here. I, I will not listen to anybody that tries to say Enter the Dragon is not a seminal new Hollywood film. I don't know why no one considers Enter the Dragon a new Hollywood flick. I love it. It's great. It's um, it's not the movie that introduced me to Bruce Lee. Uh, I actually saw it. Ooh, it's probably maybe like the fifth Bruce Lee movie I saw, but uh, it, it's it's a great movie. I think it should, yeah, because it it gave us a lot. It was a bold move to like, we're going to do this. No American actors except for Jim Kelly, who's black. And John Saxon. John Saxon was not a name then. He was John Saxon. He's always been John Saxon. He wasn't the cult icon he is today. That's true. After this, we got to what started everything to change. The first, what we'd call blockbuster, Jaws. Jaws, which I think is an absolute new Hollywood film. 
both in how it was made and just the final product. But Jaws, after the success of Jaws, they started seeing these films as we need to start tampering more. Because while Jaws turned out great, it was almost a fluke. I mean, we've talked about it before, how Spielberg wanted to shoot this like a creature feature, and it's, it was only as good as it was by accident. The studio decided, we need to start making these more like this on purpose. So Jaws was the starting point of New Hollywood taking a downshift because the studio started giving more notes and being more involved. So while everything after this is New Hollywood up to 1982, it was a different era. This was the studio-involved New Hollywood, and you didn't have as much of the of the sliding into counterculture as you had prior. That's more of where it's like, okay, we're in this for the money now. Well, it's not like before it's like, you can make whatever message you want. As long as we're making, as long as it makes money, this one is okay. Make us money. I think so. Um, it's kind of rough because you don't want to think of a movie that's as good as jaws that that was successful by accident. I mean, they're you know with the whole but, they, were, but I'm they wanted not to show wrong the shark. Saying that. No, no, you're you're not wrong, but it it is kind of sad because it's it's such an iconic film, and if everything had gone according to plan, it probably would have been awful. Hell, if they'd left in all the subplots about the mob in the movie, it would have been awful. Yeah, and showed the shark like right out of the gate, uh, just it would not have worked. With this new New Hollywood, which is what I'll dub the 1975 through 1982 era, you had them grabbing hot properties such as Carrie, but you also had had them going back to their roots like spy thrillers, Marathon Man. You had them actually in this new New Hollywood era, they were seeing what the independent films were doing, and this is where they jumped on that bandwagon. Like with Jaws, Roger Corman has that famous quote, I was making movies like Jaws for a tenth of the budget 20 years before Jaws. Now the studios are doing this. I can no longer compete with that. So now you had the foreign spy thrillers, and the studios are saying, let's start making these. You have stuff like Outlaw Josie Wales, where they're going, hey, all these spaghetti westerns, we can even get the guy from the spaghetti westerns. You started to see the independents being co-opted by the new New Hollywood. And you also got really outrageous stuff like to this day i can't believe network was ever made because it's a film that is all about not biting the hand that feeds it but biting it off regurgitating it and shitting it back out and then making you eat it again how did network get made by a studio i have no idea how they trusted Sidney Lumet. they just had implicit trust they knew he did good work and they're like just do it do you think they didn't get it? Do, they, do you think they didn't get that the entire movie was a shot at the people who financed the movie? I think they thought it was a shot at the other guy. Oh, yeah, because we're the good one, right? Yeah, we're the good one. Oh, we never do that. that other, this is what that other studio is doing. Yeah, I think that uh, the people in charge didn't really get it, that they were the ones that everyone was as mad as hell about. So uh, if they were smart enough to get it they probably would have not let the movie go as it was or might have tampered with it or might have ruined it in some capacity well and then now with this new new hollywood you have films that 
prior to this, prior to 1975, probably wouldn't even have been part of New Hollywood, but would have been independent, such as Rocky and Taxi Driver. I see both of those as being quickie drive-in movies that, if not for the backing by the big studios, would have been forgotten quickly. But like I said, at this point, the studios were seeing what the independents were doing, and they were starting to steal that. Do you think something like Rocky or Taxi Driver, do you think what I just said about Rocky and Taxi Driver is accurate? I think that is accurate, Josh. Um, in fact, when Rocky was trying when, when Rocky was trying to sell Stallone, when Stallone was trying to sell Rocky, he had a very hard time because no studio really wanted to touch it. And Lloyd Kaufman helped produce it. They did the second unit. And Lloyd Kaufman Tra- is the sleazy manager. Troma alumni John Alvidson directed it. Well, Troma didn't technically exist yet, but yeah. Even more than Jaws, I think the the co-opting of the independence, which would be something like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's that's a new Hollywood film that that along with Star Wars, both in 1977, said we're taking the quickie drive-in movie and we're giving it a big budget polish, which kind of ended up destroying those big the the quickie drive-in movies because they just could not compete on a technical level with Close Encounters and Star Wars. This is where you started to see New Hollywood going down the tubes. Not because of both of those movies. Both of those movies are fine. But this is when marketing and cross-marketing started to become more important than the movies. Because one of the tenets of New Hollywood was always the movie comes first. After Star Wars, it was how do we sell this coming first? Well, it kind of started an unfortunate trend where uh, they're pushing so much, uh, you know, showing you, you know, this, you have to see this movie. This is the most important thing ever. They're pushing show... the pop culture over the film. Right. And it, it unfortunately has led to the hole that we're in now where we're getting trailers that show the whole movie. I actually started going back to old Hollywood where a film was a spectacle, an event. New Hollywood That's is very true. Remember Cleopatra from the 40s? That was a huge, giant event, and it failed miserably. It was a huge, giant bomb, too. This is what they were working their way back to. That's part of the problem. The studios started to regain control, and they started turning new Hollywood back into old Hollywood. And you still had some exemptions here. The Deer Hunter would have never been made in old Hollywood. The 78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers is almost a literal counterculture and subversion film both in the film and what it's talking about animal house would have never come out in old hollywood but then you had ones like greece greece is about the safest goddamn movie you could have ever made the true end of new hollywood there's still other films here but the true end was 1979's apocalypse now all of the publicity around apocalypse now was not about the movie it was about the making of the movie, Coppola going crazy, the sets being destroyed, how Variety ran for over seven weeks, every single day, a story about how over budget and crazy Apocalypse Now was before the movie came out. This is where the making of the movie became almost as important as the movie itself. That was, I think, when New Hollywood had gone too far. And of course, you still had Coppola then blowing it again later, officially. You still had very big groundbreakers like Kramer versus Kramer might not be a great film. That was the first time divorce was ever talked about in a realistic manner in a film, whether you like it or not. 
And now, this is coming from a straight man's perspective, so Alex, you may totally disagree with me, but I think Cruising is one of the most vile and sadistic films I've ever seen. I can't believe a studio made Cruising. It's it's a movie that hates gay people, and yet it's, it's a movie all about gay people, and I don't understand why Cruising worked. It's a weak film. It doesn't tell its story well. Most of the characters have no motivations for what they do, and it portrays gay people as literally living for their next blowjob or butt f- and that's it. That they, they don't think about anything except getting it on. Am I wrong on cruising? No, I think William Friedkin was trying, and he didn't know anything about gays. The book, from what I understand about the book, it's even more hate-filled than the movie, though. Ah, well, see, there you go. Studio made him tone it down. (laughs) Because, okay, just take the plot of Cruising into account. You know what would have been a great movie? Live inside Al Pacino's head. A straight man that, while doing his job, is forced to go into the gay underground and then finds he actually likes it and has trouble readjusting to his straight life. That is a good movie. That is a movie that pre-1975 old Hollywood would have told. This is a slasher flick. Am I wrong on that, Alex? Would my version of Cruising not be more interesting? No, it would be, actually. That's what I wanted when I watched Cruising, actually. Well, you got to remember, back then, gay was still wrong. So, of course, they were going to make gays out to look bad. And Cruising, it it is an anomaly. Uh, I, I would like to see it again. I haven't seen it in a while. And I am curious about the sort of documentary that's coming out about it it's it's definitely an interesting film it is vile but um uh, no more so than a lot of other movies from around that time it just so happens that this one it's a vile film that has gay a lot of gays in it i also don't understand why it's not considered a slasher film more it came out you know around friday the 13th and all of the spawns why is Cruising not considered a slasher flick? Because Friedkin directed it, and oh, he doesn't do sl- slasher flicks, right? Possibly why Silence of the Lambs is not considered a horror flick. The two films that destroyed New Hollywood, Heaven's Gate in 1980 and the absolute final nail in the coffin, One from the Heart in 1982. Both of these movies nearly bankrupted their respective studios. They were with directors who were absolutely out of control, budgets that were absolutely out of control and movies that bombed so significantly that the Hollywood system decided we're taking this thing back. New Hollywood is over. Heaven's Gate and yes, one from the heart were the final straw because those were movies where they're like, these directors could do no wrong. We have implicit trust in them. Let's give them all the money they want and keep giving them money after they've spent all the money they want. Yeah. And both Tremina and Coppola ate money like Pac-Man and Dots gave nothing for it those you know nothing that brought returns you can say what you want about heaven's gate or one from the heart whether it was I, good or bad i actually oh. enjoy i actually enjoy heaven's gate in the director's cut when i refer to it as being a disaster i'm talking about what was released to theaters in 1980 you know it did they made a fraction of the money back and that's when studios are like well this is what happens when you give the director control we need to be in charge again uh, I only really know about Heaven's Gate. I don't know about the other one. Didn't they cut like an hour out of Heaven's Gate? I think it was. Of... I think it was more than an hour. But didn't just recently, 
Heaven's Gate got the Criterion edition where it was the version that should have been released and it kind of was vindicated? Oh, it's been vindicated for years. Uh, Z Channel, back in the 80s, ran the director's cut of Heaven's Gate and it got critical accolades. So, So, I mean, the the director's cut's not a new thing for that. Actually, Heaven's Gate is the first film to ever be released in a director's cut. It just kind of goes back to my, my general feeling that although... Sometimes the studio will interfere, will make a film better. I will always side with the director because I'd say 90% of the time. You know my feelings on Chimino, though. I hate I hate actually saying he was right because I hate him. Right. But that's what I'm saying. It's not, it's not always the director. The director is not always right, but the majority of the time they are because you look at their version of the film. And then you look at what the studio did to the film because you never hear. Well, I shouldn't say you never hear, but you almost never hear. You know, oh man, I sure am glad the studio took that away from the director. I guess the final question for tonight will be: New Hollywood. Do you think in today, 2014, do you think we could have a movement like New Hollywood within the studio system? I'm not talking about the studios buying up New Line and buying up Miramax and things like that. I mean the actual big studio system. Do you think we could ever see a movement like New Hollywood again? Or was this something that existed from 1969 to 1982 and that's it? I would like to see one again. I would like to see them let the artists be artists for a while again. But it's going to take a lot for that to happen. We can. There is not... A lot of fiction in what Lucas and Spielberg said recently about Hollywood imploding on itself. All of the money they are dumping into film lately and not getting what they need, they realize something has to change. And you know what? It might be it might be something like New Hollywood that makes that change because they're losing way too much money. I think it's absolutely going to like implode on itself. They're they're getting to the point where they're blowing so much money on these films, and a lot of it is nonsensical. I can understand. All right, you need uh, X amount of dollars to do these really big films, but you do not need to pay an actor like seventy million dollars for the film. It's just it's out of control. They're spending, and then they they wonder why the movie goes out and it, and, and it does well. But it's just it's not good enough because they've dumped too much money into it. It's kind of like the uh, the Atari crash. They printed they printed more copies of the game than there were actual 2600s in existence. They're getting to the point where they're making budgets that are just so astronomically high. And then they're dumping hundreds of millions of dollars into the marketing that if the movie doesn't open to like a record breaking turnout, then they're just panicking and they fire everyone and they're they're just they're just doing things the wrong way. They're dumping too much money into this and they're just gonna you know shoot themselves in the foot. What's going to happen is more of what happened in the '90s. There's going to be like an independent film resurgence and there's going to be a lot of smaller films that end up coming out and just obliterating bigger ones. Or at least I hope so. And see, you, you brought up the, the 90s. I actually thought for a while there that that was the beginning of a new, new, new Hollywood. When you started to see Miramax before they were owned by Disney and all that, and you started to see these relatively small films become the films that everyone was talking about while they were ignoring the, the Hollywood films, that's almost the exact scenario of what happened in the 60s. So I was 
I was ready for a new, new, new Hollywood for whatever reason, instead of, and maybe this is just the politics of the day having changed, instead of them deciding we need to change how we make movies, they just said, we will buy these small films and release them, and now there are films. It's not quite the same thing. I don't think, I don't think you're wrong, either of you, that, that what Lucas and Spielberg said is not going to happen. It's definitely going to if they keep on this path. I don't know if we could see another new Hollywood era. The studios, they have too much invested to give the actual artists control anymore. It is exceedingly rare nowadays that a director gets director's cuts or you get a deal like Patty Chayefsky had on Network. The director is not allowed to change a single word of the screenplay without the writer's express approval. I don't think we're going to go back to those days, unfortunately. I think... At best, we're going to see the independents start to step up more, but we're not going to see Hollywood learn its lesson. So on that note, Hugo Piglets, where can people find you? Oink, oinkity, oink, 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 cats. Geekjuicemedia.com. Cecil, where can people find you, boy? You can find me at goodbadflicks.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. Oink, oink, meow, meow, something or other. You got a real purty mouth, boy. I'm gonna make I'm gonna I'm gonna make Alex squeal like a Hugo Piglets. I'm gonna oink like one. I ain't gonna fucking squeal for you. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You man, remember you can get T-shirts there now. All of the shows, the other shows. Go to 1201beyond. Get a T-shirt, damn it. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And remember, people, if you have not seen the new Hollywood movement, these are films you need to see. To be a true cinema fan, you need to watch new Hollywood films. And not new, new Hollywood films necessarily. Have a good night. Here's my story, sad but true, about a girl that I once knew. She broke my heart, I became unglued. It all started when she called me.
how I got where I am. But this ain't where it ends. The doctors said they cured me. I said goodbye to my crazy friends. I was smiling as I left that place. My life, my life had been renewed. The guard at the gate, he stamped my past. And he said, Yo, later, dude. Yo, later, dude. Radio Drone is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.